and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the honor of talking to Dr. Merlin Tuttle about bats and wind farms. Merlin, or Dr. Tuttle, started his bat career as a teenager and has done field research on every continent where bats live. He's photographed hundreds of species. He founded and led the Bat Conservation International for 30 years and retired in 2009, and he has been a key force in changing the way the world perceives bats. Dr. Tuttle is comfortable crawling deep into caves, lugging equipment through tropical jungles, or standing on a stage introducing the world to the secret lives of bats. I first heard about Dr. Tuttle when I found his book, The Secret Lives of Bats, on a shelf. And given my upcoming summer position, I grabbed the book and read it as I was getting ready to take Barley and Niffler out to the wind farm. And I was really excited when I heard back from him and he agreed to come on this show. Dr. Tuttle is a very big deal. And I am so excited to get to this interview. Before we get to it, though, we're going to talk about our weekly suggestion, which is to come to conversations ready to learn and ready to be curious. Um, This has been on my mind a lot lately because I've made a new friend since moving to Colorado who has some very different political views from me. I respect him a lot. I care about him a lot as a person. And he's very smart. And we enjoy learning from each other, even though we disagree on a lot of things. So on that note, Dr. Tuttle has a ton of experience with bats and has a lot of things to say that might be hard to hear as a supporter of green and especially wind energy. In fact, I found myself feeling defensive at times throughout the conversation, um, and that's okay. We're here to learn and grow and share ideas, and even if you don't agree with everything that Dr. Tuttle says, um, I hope you can still learn a lot about bats and conservation from him. Now let's get to the interview. So yeah, Dr. Tuttle, do you want to go ahead and can you give um, me and our listeners a bit of a primer on what the current situation is as we best understand it with wind farms and bats? Very conservatively, we're killing more than 3 million bats a year. Wow. And uh, the species that are being most killed aren't even listed as threatened or endangered, so they have no protection. The, uh, you know, we, we, we could have reduced kills by more than 80% decades ago. Okay. Just implemented what we early learned. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've in recent years been increasingly discouraged because although I had pretty high hopes originally when I personally got the first grant that founded the Bats and Wind Energy Cooperative, between uh, the environmental side and the and industry. We were making what seemed to be excellent progress. We were discovering how to greatly reduce kills inexpensively by simply uh, feathering at key times the blades. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we got all that knowledge right quickly through cooperative research, but I'm very disappointed that most of it hasn't been implemented by very many companies. Uh, Periodically, I see announcements. uh, I'm personally no longer haven't been involved with the uh, cooperative for quite Mm -hmm. some time, more than 10 years. Uh, But from what I see, I see occasional announcements that sound really promising like yeah 
we, we've got a voluntary agreement that we're going to cut by, you know, cutting 30% is uh, not, not going to do much to help the problem either. That was the last number I saw. They're going to cut 30%. Uh, with proliferation going up as rapidly as it is, it would take a huge cut to save bats. Uh, I'm not happy with these optimistic sounding uh, announcements periodically that seem to me to be too influenced by who's giving money to who. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that although I first had the idea of cooperative funding. In fact, I raised the first grant and was told by industry that uh, this was the first time ever that a conservation organization had offered to jointly shoulder the uh, cost of solving a, a problem facing industry. Uh -huh. uh, we start out with high hopes, but my faith in the whole thing has dwindled over time as I see lots of money being spent, but it seems to be spent more on providing a cover for proceeding as usual uh, instead of really solving the problem. Were I still involved in that uh, entity, I would be insisting on, uh, okay, if we're going to provide cover, uh, we're going to see progress. Yeah. And, and I see the cover without the progress now. Yeah. Yeah. That's really disappointing. So um, for our listeners at home who may be a little bit less familiar, what is, what is feathering for um, a wind turbine? Just not powering the blades, turning them so that they're mm -hmm. uh, not turning significantly. It's like gotcha. changing your sail on a sailboat. Okay. Yeah. That's a good visual. And and my understanding, um, based on your book and also based on kind of firsthand knowledge um, on the ground, is that it seems like there are pretty heavy, specific peak times. So it seems to me, I, I agree that it seems like there should be a way to mitigate these fatalities at least more consistently by by just addressing it during a specific period of time. Is that kind of what the research says, or is that maybe specific to the given site that I was at? You know, even the original research could have been greatly improved on over time if they had chosen to do that. But instead, they've chosen to engage in kinds of research that have just gone on. You know, the for as long as I've been paying attention to government and issues or industry and issues, I've seen this trend that if, if you are supposed to do something, but you don't want to do it any sooner than you have to, you keep doing research and say you can't do it until you've done the research. But we're doing this promising research. But this promising research has been going on for decades. Yeah. And we're seeing very little implementation of what's been discovered. And the, yeah. the companies that are really trying hard to do their best find themselves at a disadvantage when the big other companies gain an economic advantage by not participating in trying to solve the problem. Uh, 
that's there's no incentive now mm-hmm. what as as I finally departed from when I retired from bat conservation air national leadership I then had no further involvement in the uh, wind power cooperative but uh, I was hoping at about the time that I left, I was working hard on putting together a an approach that I think would have worked really well and would have been incentive based rather than legal based. I I don't like relying on legislation to get people to do things. I like to give them incentives to do the right things. Yeah. Uh, what I was hoping to do would be to put a, a a coalition together of major entities that uh, were concerned and this would require a great deal of integrity but i'd like to see a committee put together of impeccably high integrity knowledgeable people mm-hmm. who could rank companies according to the how green they were cool and uh-huh. And uh, I have spelled this out in my resources on my website, MerlinTuttle.org. Uh, I was hoping to get a system where you'd be rated on, you know, how much are you, what is your level of participation in trying to solve the problem and, you know, funding research to solve the problem or cooperating in the research? Uh, Do you have public disclosure of, uh, Mm -hmm. do you have public disclosure of what what your findings are? Do you implement the latest findings to reduce the problem? Uh, This is all listed on my resource page on the subject. Uh, What, what I was told by a leading environmental investment consultant was that if we could sway investors by even five or 10%, which mm-hmm. doesn't seem all that big a challenge, um, that we could uh, make a big difference in company behavior. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was you know, not say any company is all good or all bad. I, mm-hmm. I'm perfectly happy to work with a company that is 90% bad. If we can deal with making the 10% good into 20% next year and getting a beachhead of progress. Yeah, of but, course. You know, I'm not in favor of just going out and attacking anybody because they're even, you know, too often environmentalists, go on the attack for against a company that is even doing five or 10% wrong. Uh, Mm -hmm. Every company, every group, I think has somebody in it that is good and would like to do better. And if we find those individuals and give them, uh, you know, encouragement, we can form beachheads of progress instead of getting mired up in combat. Uh, I, I was very hopeful that we could put together 
a ranking system. Again, nobody's perfect. Nobody's all bad. Mm -hmm. uh, but rank companies is where they fail in that uh, ranking system. And then I can't imagine that people concerned enough to be trying to invest in environmental progress wouldn't be influenced by that. Right. One of the big hurdles to get across though, is that uh, I haven't paid a lot of attention lately to who's who I think is getting bought by who, but uh, mm. uh, I was very frustrated many times when I was trying to find entities to properly evaluate progress, it was so common to find organizations that were taking big money from the wind power industry, which prevented them from uh, full disclosure of reality. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, so it seems like in a lot of ways we do know what needs to happen with the wind farms. There's just a, a gap in the incentives for the wind companies or the energy companies. Is there anything that listeners at home can do um, to get more involved, places to donate, places to watch, letter writing campaigns, organizations to join? I don't know. Is there anything that um, maybe someone who, yeah, someone at home who's interested and keen to help could actually do to get involved? Uh, it helps just to be more knowledgeable about who you uh -huh. support. For example, okay. ask the conservation environmental organizations that you support how much of their budget is coming from the industry. Mm -hmm. And then ask them what they're doing about it. Mm -hmm. it's not going to go down easy to have to admit that you're taking in a fair amount of money and haven't done anything. Yeah. Uh, just asking questions can make entities very uncomfortable about not taking action. Okay. Yeah. I, I have long subscribed to what I call the winning friends, winning more friends than battles approach. Yeah. And, you can, you can win a whole lot by just asking questions. You don't have to go out and accuse, just ask questions. Sure. And uh, ask, you know, what they're going to do about this. And the other thing, be well informed. I mean, right now, by very conservative estimate, I mean, you, you I'm sure from your experience with dogs at wind sites know that the numbers we have regarding kill rates of bats of wind power plants are very low estimates relative yeah. to reality. Uh, yeah, it was really remarkable kind of seeing how effective the dogs were and then going back through some of the primary lit and seeing that they used human only searches and just realizing like the level to which they must be underestimating um, because I think me alone without the dog found maybe a handful of bats all summer. And then with the dog, you know, he was able to pull out 
tufts of fur the size, you know, that wouldn't even fill a thimble that I was able to look at and say, oh, that right. looks like a hoary bat. Yeah. Um, and there's no way a human searcher would have been able to find that. And even the dogs aren't perfect. Of but course, they're a lot, yeah. But I'm they're sure a lot better than we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that was something that really tripped me up in the field is thinking like, okay, I know I'm missing a lot. I know the dog's catching a lot of what I miss, but what about the stuff he misses? And, and there are all kinds of ramifications that we don't account for. I mean, how many bats uh, may be injured that we don't mm -hmm. uh, drop dead, mm -hmm. you know, on the spot. Yeah, yeah. Or And I know the, the study that I was working with did some really cool work with, like, carcass persistence trials um, and trying to see, you know, we saw over the course of the year how much it varied from whether or not these um, the carcasses would actually persist for more than 24 hours for us to even have a chance to find them. Oh, they but, can be largely eliminated, as you probably found out, in exactly. 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. So if you're not searching basically daily, um, you're probably missing a lot. And again, you know, one of the things that it seems like you're pointing out here is that we already more or less know that this is a big problem. Well, we know this is a really big problem when we more or less know what we need to do about it. So it's a little unclear to me why they're spending their budgets on continuing to count instead of actually investing in mitigation. Uh, is that kind of the root of your frustration as well? Well, continuing to count, continuing to do research, just continuing to do everything but what's needed. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, all these reports of, you know, we're, we're making great progress. We can reduce kills by 30% or whatever. Yeah, that's nothing compared to what they could do. You know, these ultrasonic devices, the sounds attenuate rapidly in air that I can't imagine those working very well without being very costly. I don't think they've ever been all that seriously uh, considered. I think they're mainly... Mm -hmm the research on them is going on seemingly forever uh, yeah. just to keep research going on so that they got cover. Yeah. Yeah. The, based on what I know about dog training, um, which obviously is a little different from training wild bats, but it seems to me that a sonic deterrent would, even if it started out being initially useful over time, if that sound isn't backed up with anything more alarming or more frightening, most animals eventually habituate to it and it won't right. work as a deterrent anymore. Um, and the studies that I was, I found, I believe only investigated for a couple weeks with the deterrent, um, which is nowhere near long enough to really see if there's a drop off in how the bats respond to it. And in, in the, the sad thing is that the companies that uh, go out and check for mortality, they get rewarded for not finding reality. The fewer, the, the fewer of the killed bats you find, the more jobs you get. Mm -hmm. And not only the fewer bats you find, but I, I see some appearing at times to become experts at 
mathematical statistical manipulation. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if a, if a if a model or a formula is very complex, it's probably meaning that it's hiding something. Mm-hmm. We, we, we don't have to have a lot of complexity when we know what we're doing. Hey, everyone, just dropping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. Um, so we still have all those same levels that we've talked about in the past. We've got the $3 a month doggy detector where you ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but you also get to join our monthly training video calls, which are great if you're considering getting into the field of conservation dog training or are already in it and want to take you and your dog to the next level. Um, we will record the calls and then we publish the video for patrons to view and ask questions about. So everyone in all time zone gets gets to participate fully. At the $10 level, you get all of that plus the ability to ask questions, give feedback and submit videos of you and your dog training for those calls. Um, and we also, we don't care about your target owner. So if you're working on competitive scent work or explosives or narcotics or anything like that, come on and join. It's a ton of fun. Finally, canine conservationists at the highest level um, for $25 a month get a private 30-minute call with me each month, um, which is cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com. Um, so I also have a couple new updates. As of October this year, we are also going to be doing a monthly uh, learning club call. So aside from those video calls where every all of the patrons get to uh, go through dog training specific videos in these learning club calls, we will all watch the same webinar, read the science, same scientific paper, or otherwise kind of participate in the same new learning opportunity and then get together once a month on video chat to talk about it. So that's going to be a really great way to expand your knowledge, not just in the scent training world and the dog handling world, but also learning more about ecology, conservation, odor dynamics, all those great things. It's real nerdy. It's awesome. So I also added some exciting new merch. So for our patrons, now once every quarter, you will get an exclusive um, bit of canine conservationist swag if you join at the highest level. So there's a mini print of Niffler that's just kind of a cute little postcard of Niffler. Um, You get a canine conservationist mug after three months. And then there are a couple different stickers. And all of that just is kind of included in the cost of your Patreon And again, all of that helps support this podcast. This podcast would not be possible without our members over on Patreon. So I do hope you go ahead and join us over on Patreon. Again, for as little as three bucks a month, you get all sorts of fun stuff. At those higher levels, you do get more one-on-one attention and you get swag. But even if you've got three bucks a month, uh, we really appreciate it and would be thrilled to have you around. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, certainly really concerning. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Is there anything else that you'd like? Um, again, people, most of the listeners of our podcast are more on the dog training side of things, but are really interested in conservation dog work. So um, obviously we'll give them links to your website so they can check everything else out. But is there anything else you'd like to make sure that they hear before we wrap up here? Well, the, the dogs perform an excellent job but I'm concerned way beyond how well we're looking for bats under Mm -hmm. the turbines. I'm concerned with the fact that new turbines are being built at such a rate that uh, even if you achieved 80% reduction in kills, you'd probably pass the tolerable limit for some species survival just because we're putting up so many turbines. Yeah. I mean, a hoary bat migrating from Canada to Mexico in the winter or in the fall 
uh, is going to run how many gauntlets, you know, right. turbine after turbine along his whole route. And mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the companies I've seen, they'll set unrealistic kill rates. That's, these are the allowable kills that they can not be fined for. Mm -hmm. And then when they and then when they actually go into operation, they very often find that they're killing two or three or four times more bats than they said wow. they were going to kill. And instead of getting penalized for that, the government just ups the rate that's allowable. And the Yikes. companies know they're going to have that leniency. And so it doesn't, there's no disincentive for, uh, misrepresenting kill rate before the turbines are built. And certainly these pre-studies that uh, purport to find out if a site is high risk or not, uh, those are often uh, very unreliable. The turbines mm -hmm. attract bats. You know, the bats that aren't even there before the turbine's built may be there when the turbine is after it's gotcha. built because the turbines attract bats. Right. And yeah. Especially in a big great Plains state, it looks like a tree from a And I have, before. I have testified at, at hearings where the misrepresentations were beyond, you know, almost beyond credit, anything you could believe. Uh, I was at a hearing where the uh, company involved didn't know that someone from, I was from Bat Conservation International then, didn't know that I was, someone would be there representing the organization. Uh -huh. And the guy was asked how their turbines would affect bats if built. And, oh, well, glad you asked. We did a study with Bat Conservation International in which we uh, ascertained, it was ascertained that there's, virtually no problem. And uh, so when he got done, I, I asked, I still did. He didn't know who I was still. I asked uh, uh, what kind of study this was. And he had a hard time trying to nail it down. But uh, finally he had to tuck his tail and just about Jeez. run for cover when I, point out that I ran the organization and was totally unaware of any such study. And then he had to admit that they borrowed a detector for one night. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, oh God. And, yeah. That's so bad. <laughs> and the same company, when they eventually built their turbines there killed many times the, yeah, what was said to be allowable rate. And they had claimed that they were going to, uh, detect the bats coming in using radar and shut down the turbines when, when they were coming in. And later they used that as an example of something that could be done at a new site in Nevada to protect bats. Right, but and, never implemented it at the first site. But, yeah, it had never been done at the first <laughs> site. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, God. The, the misrepresentations were horrendous. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, I would just like to get back to a, some semblance of, you know, 
I hate to say this, but early on in my life, I, I was probably as opposed to nuclear as anybody on the planet. Uh, we all were, mm -hmm. but I've looked at some of the things that, uh, Michael Schellenberger has written in recent times. And, you know, I'm not even sure that the wind power as we're seeing it today, industrial wind power is really very feasible in terms of an environmental solution. He points out that, uh, you know, if we, if we went this route, going with wind and solar as we now know it in, on industrial scale could lead to the biggest mining increase in world history. And these mines are having horrible impact in polluting mm -hmm. the world. Uh, yeah. we, we hear and see about oil spills and, and are upset about those, but there are sometimes almost nothing compared to what's happening from big mines. And, uh, he points out that in a, that a single turbine requires approximately 900 tons of steel, 2,500 tons of concrete, and 45 tons of non-recyclable plastic. Wow. Now, st as he points out, you stop and think, how much mining, how much petroleum in the first place are you going to have to burn while you're mining all that? Mm -hmm. How much is it going to cost energy-wise to transport all this material, these huge turbines and everything, to get them to a, a location and put them up? Uh, and then or communities are just now beginning to learn what the cost is. You know, the, these turbines only have a limited lifespan, and uh, then they have to be replaced, and it can cost huge amounts of money to try to replace them at the end of their lifespan. So there are very serious problems. You know, if, if I were looking strictly from an economic standpoint as a taxpayer, I would be very big time questioning the feasibility of industrial wind as we know it today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it certainly seems to have um, more drawbacks than a lot of people are aware of or really able to talk about. And I think, you know, the last thing I'd like to bring up as we're kind of wrapping up here is, you know, you mentioned originally that many of the bats that are being killed by turbines are not yet listed, which means that they have fewer protections. Um, is there anything you would say about a system <laughs> or, you know, any ideas, I don't know, about the system that animals don't seem to have much of a protection until it's already a serious problem. It's so much easier to keep an animal from becoming endangered than it is to unendanger it. Well, um, now you've hit, now you've hit on one of my all time favorite topics. <laughs> oh no. All right. I'll settle in. <laughs> I mean, my God, uh, we so often throughout my history in conserving bats, I've regularly had people say, well, uh, we only conserve, we, we, only, we only work on endangered species. Are, are they endangered? And I used to say, hey, so far, all the bats that have gone extinct went extinct before anybody listed them as endangered. Wow. That's how little we know about them. And uh, 
they they seem you know like i'll give you an example here in texas we have 10 to 20 million bats living in a single cave bracken cave which i worked 20 years to help gain protection for uh that that one cave is acting as the equivalent of a fish hatchery where you each summer the fishermen catch the fish out of the river, but you put a bunch more back in from the hatchery. Uh, here in Texas, we have, I think, at least 14,000 or more turbines already in operation. And the first time I inquired about bat kills, I was told they didn't have any. And then I found that the reason they didn't have any was they weren't required to check. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that <laughs> and, doesn't and, seem helpful. And I remember going to a site where we, we'd we been allowed by the company to check their site. And when we got there, the site manager said that we were wasting our time, that he didn't have any bat kills at his place. And I didn't even walk 10 feet I, while I was still talking to him. I looked down and saw a dead hoary bat on the ground and said, this is what we're talking about. Oh but my gosh. It's like, you know, if, if you weren't required to look and you didn't find, you didn't have bat of course. kills. Yeah. But, but for a, a bat like the free tail bats, those are among the most vulnerable to wind power and especially pregnant ones are vulnerable. Oh, no. So, uh, you know, how long can we go along and say, well, these aren't endangered, but what if we knocked out just a single cave with 10 to 20 million bats in it that is acting as the kind of fish hatchery for the area? Mm -hmm. Uh Bats are very vulnerable because they congregate so many in such conspicuous and small, easily vandalized locations. And if you wait until an animal is so few left that they can be called endangered, you've already lost all the benefits. I mean, why run animals to biological irrelevance before we do anything it's dramatically lacking in cost effectiveness for us to wait for things to be endangered we should be working much harder to protect you know it's it's the most abundant animals that make the biggest environmental difference in keeping nature healthy and keeping yeah absolutely us healthy but we mm-hmm. wait until they decline to the point of virtual irrelevance and then spend millions of dollars trying to bring them back when we could have just prevented them from becoming endangered. And I see that mm-hmm. happening with say hoary bats right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do we know why the pregnant females are most vulnerable to the turbines for these free tailed bats? Well, uh, there's some assumption on my part. I, I think I've read that reported as well, but a, a pregnant bat is not as maneuverable. Of course. Yeah. And yeah, they're more, that makes sense. You know, they come out later in the evening because they're more vulnerable to hawk predation and things like that. They're, mm-hmm. uh, it just makes sense that if you're trying to avoid a collision with something, you're going to be less able if you're pregnant. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course. And I would imagine they also have heightened caloric needs. So potentially but, foraging for longer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that that is information that's already out there scientifically. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm admitting that. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've read that as well. And we can, um, we'll dig it up and make sure we link <laughs> it in the show notes so people can see that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Tuttle, is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, I do know you're, you're busy and um, I want to be respectful of your time and let you go. But if there's anything else you'd like to bring up before we go, um, I'm here for well, it. Well, I'm I'm uh, happy to see you digging into what's really going on and what needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest things that we can all do is just reduce wasting power. I mean, of course, yeah. More, more than a decade ago, the U.S. Department of Energy was pointing out that we could cut energy demands by 20% without reducing our standard of living. Wow. Yeah. Why do we, you know, I would like to ask this, why do so many conservation organizations talk only about meeting our growing power needs with renewable energy? Why don't they occasionally talk about reducing wasted power? Of course. If we'd be more conservative of power and waste less, we wouldn't have to have all these new, but we seem to always be, instead of conserving power, we're trying to justify building more renewables to provide power that we wouldn't need if we just conserved it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's a good a good note to end on. End on. That's something that everyone can do at home and really, yeah, really make a little bit of a difference. And that's something that at least everyone can control in their own households. Um, well, Dr. Cattuttle, as we, um, once this episode is live, we'll make sure that everyone's got their, sh- their links to your websites and your talks to um, help them find everything. And I really, really appreciate your time. It's been great talking to you. And I should mention that uh, mm-hmm. I think I, on uh, as an aside, mentioned it once or twice, but I am no longer at Bat Conservation International. Correct. Yeah. I have founded a whole nother organization and my new organization doesn't take major any money yeah. <laughs> from industries we're talking about. Gotcha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation. Excellent. Yeah, well we'll be sure to link to that. I retired from leadership of the original organization I founded, which was Bat Conservation International. I retired from there in 2009. Mm -hmm. By 2014, it became obvious that my retirement wasn't working very well. My unique experience and photo collection and things were still Mm -hmm. in great demand and uh, I couldn't handle it all. And so I founded a new organization in 2014, which is Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll be sure to drop all of those links into the show notes so people can find them. And uh, yeah, that sounds like a great place to wrap it up. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. This week's call to action is to research your utility company and ask them about green energy options in your area. They may not have any and you know, the least we can do is ask and potentially push them. I know there are some cool um, organizations where you can kind of offset your energy usage um, with green energy. So those are things to look at. And I know this is a little boring. It's a little tedious. I used to suggest that you take your dogs for a walk and now I'm telling you to talk to your utility company. I know. I don't want to do it either. Um, but consider consider it. Take a look. And um, in the meantime, you can also find your show notes, donate to Canine Conservationists, and join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.